I really enjoy having uh, our kindergartners and uh, early elementary kids up on these fifth Sundays. I know the cohort kids get up here every other week, but it's cool to see so many of our students up today. And I, I just wanted to start off with who here, and this could be anybody, but students too, who here has read the book or seen the movie Snow White? Anyone seen that show or know what I'm talking about? There's Snow White, right? Um, in the movie or the book Snow White, uh, originally written by the Brothers Grimm, there is a magic mirror in the story, and there is a stepmother. Snow White's stepmother is this beautiful but evil woman who has access to this magic mirror, and this magic mirror has the power to tell the truth about any question that you ask it. Ask it anything, it will tell you the truth. And I'm just thinking about all the cool things you could ask this mirror. You know, who's going to win the World Series? Maybe put a little side bet on or something like that. And the mirror would tell you. You could say, and maybe it's just yes or no. I, I don't really know how the mirror works, but you could say something like, uh, you know, are the Cubs going to win the World Series? A yes or no would tell you who's going to win the World Series, right? Uh, or I, I could find out things like, is the second season of Stranger Things going to be as good as the first? Because I don't want to waste my time with a letdown if it's not as good as the first. Or you could ask this mirror, like, okay, seriously, in Star Wars The Force Awakens, who will raise parents? I've got to know. Is it, is it Obi-Wan? Okay, I've got to know these questions. But if you're an evil stepmother suffering from a severe case of narcissism, those aren't the questions you ask the mirror that tells the truth. Kids, what does she ask the mirror over and over again in the story? Yeah, pretty much. Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Who's the fairest of them all? Exactly. Since the mirror can only speak the truth, this beautiful but evil stepmother loves going to this mirror and saying, mirror, mirror, on the wall, who's the fairest of them all? Because for a long time, apparently, she was the fairest in the land. And it felt really good for her to go to this mirror who can only tell the truth. You know, sometimes if you ask your your husband or a significant other, do, am I the most beautiful? Well, they kind of have to say yes, but you don't know if it's really true. Thankfully, in my case, it is really true. But the mirror, <laughs> the mirror cannot tell a lie. So the stepmother loves it when the mirror says, you are the fairest of them all because it is absolutely true. That is until Snow White, her stepdaughter, gets to a certain age and then usurps her as the most beautiful in the land. And we all know where the story goes from there. In literature, Mirrors, pools, ponds, anything that reflects typically is something, a device, a metaphor for something that tells you the truth about yourself. The Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20 are, among other things, a mirror for God's people. As we worked our way through the first seven commandments, I've been pointing out that these laws reveal part of the heart of God. In these laws, we have communication from what's uh, about what's important to God from Him to us. And that in itself is fantastic. We have a God who communicates with us, who shares what's important to Him with us. That's amazing. But the laws don't only reveal God's heart toward us. They also act as a mirror to show what's in our own hearts. Daryl Johnson quoting E. Stanley Jones, says, the Ten Commandments are not an imposition upon you. They're an exposition of you. The Ten Commandments are not an imposition placed on you. They're an exposition of you. In other words, the Ten Commandments aren't made to crush us with burdens. 
they're made to read us, to reflect what's really going on in our hearts. All throughout this series, we've been asking, why did this commandment, murder, adultery, why did those commandments, why did they make God's top ten list? If these commandments are a mirror of truth, the reason God gave us these commandments is because they must reveal points of reality that are in us, points of weakness in us. They reflect areas of temptation and potential destruction. And this evening, we're going to look at the commandment number eight. You shall not steal. You shall not steal. This is another one of those commandments that on the surface seems like a no-brainer. If you've ever had anything stolen from you, you know that this isn't a good thing. Has anyone ever had anything stolen from them? Dangerous things. Passport. That sucks. That's horrible. <laughs> That's a lot of paperwork to get that back. And identity theft. Any, anyone else? What's a... French, oh, that's, that's not good. Anybody else? Oh, brutal. That's, this is kind of fun. Anyone else? <laughs> Candace. Your new bike. Oh, oh okay. That's, that's cool. Yeah. Yes, yes, we, yeah. That was a long time ago. <laughs> We were skiing one time at Lake Tahoe, and Corey had this headache, so we went in, put our skis at the little rack to get some Tylenol. Skis are gone. They were only like eight months old. So yeah, it hurts when you have something stolen from you, um, and so you kind of intuitively know that it's wrong. But just what constitutes stealing? Is it just when your stuff is taken or your identity is taken? And why is that such a big deal to God? Like, aren't there, stealing is bad, but aren't there bigger issues that you could certainly bump stealing off of the top 10 list? Isn't there something more destructive than stealing? Well, let's begin with the question, what is stealing? In the later chapters of Exodus, then in Deuteronomy, throughout the prophets, and then in the letters of the New Testament, we learn actually a great deal about what stealing is according to the scriptures. Taking money or possessions that didn't belong to a person was considered stealing. There's also a lot of talk about people stealing a neighbor's oxen or donkey. Kidnapping was stealing. Um, well, it still is. I'm talking about the Bible, so I'm using past tense. But kidnapping, and that was the, the one of the instance of stealing, by the way, in the Bible that uh, required the death penalty. That was a serious one. But stealing isn't just a crime of taking a physical thing that belonged to another person. It was also considered stealing if you cheated someone in a business transaction. Uh, for example, you've got this chicken. It doesn't lay eggs anymore, but you're marketing it as a chicken. Hey, this chicken could feed you and your family uh, all week. And so somebody buys the chicken for full price thinking that it's going to feed their family with eggs every week. And you go, ha ha, I made a deal. Prophet Amos, for example, would say that that's stealing. The prophet Malachi even says that to withhold our tithe, our 10% offering to God, is stealing from God. And then it gets even more complex. If your neighbor is on a journey, they've left to go somewhere, uh, and you, are, you live next door to them, your farm is here, their farm is there, and their ox or their donkey or their sheep gets out of its pen, and you see it meandering down the street. If you see it, and you don't grab it, take it in, 
feed it and care for it until your neighbor gets back, the Bible says that that is stealing because you neglected to take care of the property of your neighbor. So stealing, according to the Bible, isn't as black and white as just robbing a bank or shoplifting from a store. To help us further understand what constitutes stealing, I'm going to need some elementary, and maybe even middle schoolers if we have them, just basically K through 6. If, if you want to participate in a little game show, uh, I'll have you come forward. Now, there's two things. I will wear my game show jacket, so it's official. And there are prizes. There's going to be two teams, and the winning team will win this. Is anyone interested now? Yeah. We're going to play a little game of, is it stealing? Is it stealing? All right. All right. I've got my cue cards here. Now, let's, uh, let's, let's divvy this team up a little more equal terms. Let's see here. Let's have... Torn, you go to this side, and Zoe, you stay there, Stella on this side, and Ben, you better come over here. Jack, which side do you want? You're in the middle. Go ahead, buddy. Grant, you want to stay over there? Yeah. Isabella, you want to go this side? All right, we got one, two, three, four, five, six. One, two, three. Oh, that's... Oh, yeah, okay, let's do this. Let's have Grant and Isabella, you come over here, and let's go with Elsa and Sophia over there. All right. All right. And Stella, go over there. We're, we're going to break up these siblings. Okay, now do jumping jacks. I'm just, just seeing how far I can get away with this. Okay. All right. Team one. Team two. All right. Here's how this is going to go. I've got three questions for each team. The team with the most points at the end wins that bag of candy. I've got a tiebreaker, too. So don't worry about it. All right. Team one, you walk into a grocery store. You're with some friends. You're in the candy aisle. You decide to put a candy bar in your pocket. You figure, man, that store has like hundreds and thousands of candy bars. They're not going to miss one candy bar. So you walk out of the store without paying. Team one, you can talk to each other. According to the Bible, is that stealing? Low-hanging fruit, low-hanging fruit. That was one point for team one. I'm going to put that right there. All right, team number two. Who's going to be your spokesperson? I thought it might be you. All right. Team number two. Halloween is tomorrow, right? Are you excited for that? Okay. You go trick-or-treating. And whether this is true or not, let's say you have a little sibling in the house. You notice that your little sibling has a king-size Snickers, full-size Who gives out those? That's awesome. What a find. You say to that little sibling, hey, I've got these two, you know the mini Tootsie Rolls that are really kind of crummy, look like cat turds? Okay, you say, two are better than one. And you get that king-size snicker for those two Tootsie Rolls. According to the Bible, is that stealing team number two? These guys are sharp. Okay, I'm sorry. All right, all right. It is a tricky one because you gave something for it, right? All right. In some circles, that might be fair. Team number one, you're walking down the hall at your school. You notice a packet of Pokemon cards, rubber bands around it like this fat. You start going through the cards. You realize there's about 17 in there that you don't have yet. Pretend you care about Pokemon if you don't. 
Now, no one's around. You have no idea how you're going to find the owner of these Pokemon cards, right? So you just find them, you just keep them. Team number one, is that stealing? Yes. <laughs> I don't know. What you, I don't know. So Ben doesn't think so. You guys better vote on it amongst yourselves. How many think it is stealing? How many think it is not? Yeah? That's right. Ding, 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 ding. Remember the story about the oxen that was straying, the neighbor's oxen, and you've got to care for it and find the owner. Okay. All right. Yeah, Ethical dilemmas. You have to take your dad's class. Okay. Um, all right. Team number two. When you grow up someday and you get a job, the law's going to say something like this: like you've got to pay taxes on what you earn. Now, this particular year that you're working, uh, you owe five hundred dollars at the end of the year. Now, you could decide to pay your taxes, like the law says, or you figure there's millions of people in America, and if I just didn't pay the $500, think what you could buy with $500. You could buy something nice for yourself or a fun adventure, or you could even give it away to somebody else because you think maybe the government doesn't spend their money very wisely. So you don't pay your taxes. Team number two, according to the Bible, is that stealing? Yeah. Oh, these guys are good. Okay. We're all tied up. We're all tied up. All right. Team number one, you are hiking in Mount Baker National Forest. Beautiful, beautiful place, right? And while hiking, you see some delicious huckleberries on the side of the trail. Now, you didn't plant the berries, and they're not on private property, so you decide to stop and eat a bunch of these huckleberries. According to the Bible, is that stealing? Conspire. Yes, so we got two yeses, a no, a loud no, a yes. The answer is no. The answer is no. The answer is no. I don't know. That's, I think more of your group said yes. The reason is we have a good and gracious God, and he gives us treats like huckleberries all over the place. And if that's on our national park land, if that's just not on someone's private property, and we, we don't need to ask permission for that, that is a gift from God, just like that crazy apple tree that grows up in your yard or something like that. You get that fruit, yummy free. So we're, gonna, we're just going to put that off the side. Ben, you're the only voice. But maybe they'll give you a starburst if they win this thing. Okay. All right. Team number two, your dad, or your mom, uh, has a baseball signed by Ken Griffey Jr. sitting on their desk or their mantle. It's in a glass thing. And they never let you touch it, but sometimes they let you look at it. Now, this Friday is the show-and-tell day at your school. You really want to bring that ball. Your dad's already gone to work early, and you think, I'll take that ball... I'll put it in my backpack. I'll bring it to school, show and tell. He'll never know. I'll put it back on the mantle. Pfft. Kids will be impressed. No one's hurt. 
Team number two, according to the Bible, is that stealing? Most people say yes. Yes, you are right. When you take something that doesn't belong to you without permission, according to the scriptures, that would be stealing. Team number two is rocking it. All right. So, yeah. <laughs> you can t- see, that's with permission. You actually have one? You actually have one? Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, take that. Give it to me. I was kidding. That's over. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so what I want you guys to do is listen to the message as we keep going now, and you decide if uh, you ought to maybe later on share that bag of candy or not. It's up to you, but you listen and see what you think. And uh, just for the sake of sanity out in the, in the congregation, I'm going to keep the candy until afterwards, okay? And then we'll sit up. So give these guys a hand. Good job. Thank you. It's over. Yeah. All right, so we looked at a few fun examples of what constitutes stealing according to the Bible. And if we look at other ancient law codes from the same time period that uh, the Exodus, uh, the Ten Commandments are given us, what we see is lots of laws from lots of cultures and lots of uh, kings and and, uh, rulers that say no stealing. Um, So why is God's law against stealing something special, or how is it inspired, as we might say about Scripture. Why is it any different than the law of Hammurabi or any of these other ancient Near Eastern laws? Two main reasons. The first one applies to the whole Ten Commandments. In all the other situations of ancient laws given to people, they're given by a king or a ruler or a priestly caste, and they're given as standalone laws, like here's a tablet of laws, and I'm giving this to you from my reign, which might be three years if I'm lucky because it was a brutal world, or maybe up to 40 years if you're a thriving king. But for this time period, here's the law because I say so, and I think it's good for society, and if you don't do these things, you're nicked, okay? So it's, they're not contextual. They're just given to you. The Ten Commandments are given in a story, in a narrative, in an actual phase of life. And, and what we have with the Ten Commandments is not just the law dropped out of heaven, given out of context. We have creation, and we know that men and women are made in the image of God, and we have the fall, and we have a, a falling out with God, and we have a history of God delivering a people out of Egypt and saying, I'm setting you aside, not because you're super special, but because I'm going to bless you to be a blessing to the world, and I'm going to give you the law to show you, to get you on the right track of how to be that people in the world. And so the Ten Commandments are given as part of God's redemptive story, not just dropped out of context upon us or upon his people. They're given by a God who is our creator, our savior, our liberator, and they're given to make us the new people of God. So that's, that's the first main difference between 
the Ten Commandments and other ancient laws. Second, and this, is a, this applies specifically to the law on stealing, the Ten Commandments differ from other ancient laws in the punishments attached to them. In nearly every other ancient law against stealing, the punishment for stealing was uh, severe and final. So uh, for the lower class people, if you were caught stealing figs from the market, you could be executed. If you're a middle or, or a higher class person, uh, at a minimum, you're probably going to lose your arm or be maimed by losing a foot um, to do two things. One, to permanently punish you, and two, to give you a stigma. Uh, people that were lo- had missing limbs in that culture were marginalized to society. They were cursed by everyone else. And so you forever would lose your social standing. The Ten Commandments uh, differ from that in the law of stealing in that the, the justice is restorative. And so uh, in the Ten Commandments, for example, if you steal someone's oxen, you are supposed to give back the oxen, or if you killed it and ate it or it died, you're supposed to give back five times, five more oxen. Or for sheep, it was four to one. And uh, so the, the justice is restorative. The only one that's different is kidnapping. And the reason for that difference is because, think about it, God delivered the Israelites out of Egypt, out of slavery, to free them to worship him. Now, if an Israelite kidnaps another Israelite and puts them in effect slavery because uh, people back then didn't kidnap people for ransom like we think drug cartels might today or any Liam Neeson movie or something like that. Um, they, they kidnap people to turn them into slave labor. It was all economic. And so if you take someone and make them a slave again, God says, no, no, what you are doing is you are acting as Egypt you are acting as our, the enemy that I took you right out of. You do not put people, you do not undo my redemptive work. And so that is the, the one case of stealing uh, where there is um, the death penalty. The thief is hurt economically. It makes, you, it makes you think twice before you steal something. If you know you get caught by stealing, stealing an ox, you're going to have to give back five times as much. God's vision of human thriving doesn't include things like maiming people or crippling them. Justice should be restorative, a major warning, but not something that brings them to absolute ruin. As time went on, And Jesus was incarnate and taught and died and rose. As the early church reflected on the law against stealing, we get people like John Chrysostom, uh, St. John who was preaching in the 5th century about how luxurious living right next to people who are suffering from poverty and starvation is actually stealing from them. We read Thomas Aquinas in the 13th century agreeing with the prophet uh, Amos that not to pay a worker their wages and just wages is stealing from them. That any fraud in the marketplace is stealing. And since it's Reformation Sunday, it seems only fitting uh, to mention that Martin Luther uh, considered uh, any kind of deceit at all in the marketplace to be an act of theft. That means selling a used car on Craigslist, saying it's in mint condition, knowing that the transmission's going to go out in about 200 miles is stealing from whoever you sold that to. I mean, you, you play all this out in different, different ways. 
And another great reformer, John Calvin, said that if we want to get a firm grip on what it means to steal, we should look instead of what it means to thrive. What is shalom? What would the world look like if there was shalom? So shalom means peace. We've talked about this before, but uh, since our uh, K on up age kids are here, kids, if you've heard this word shalom, have you heard this? Isabella, isn't it your middle name, Shalom? That's, that's a beautiful middle name. Yes, yes. Shalom, uh, one of the simple ways that's put by Scott McKnight is Shalom is when you have what you need and you need what you have and your neighbor has what he and she needs and needs what they have. So therefore, you cannot have Shalom as a personal thing uh, because if your neighbor also doesn't have Shalom, then that's not Shalom. Shalom is where the community has what it needs and needs what it has. So what Calvin says is maybe we should look at, uh, instead of trying to like in our brain get a list of all the things that constitute stealing, maybe instead we should look at what brings shalom and the things that we do that stand against shalom for ourselves and for our neighbor, then maybe that's stealing. Another way of saying this is, talking about the common good. Are my decisions, are my transactions, are my business dealings, my actions, are they bettering my community, my neighbor, or are they only improving uh, things for me? Are they making things worse for my neighbor? Just because something is legal doesn't make it right. I know you get this, (laughs) but we need to be reminded. I need to be reminded. Mylan Pharmaceuticals, anyone heard of them? Yeah, they weren't really a household name, at least to me, uh, until recently. Um, They are the makers of the EpiPen, uh, which if you have a severe allergy, you know is a life-saving device that you can inject epinephrine into your uh, tissue, and uh, it can help save your life if you're having an allergic reaction, anaphylactic shock, this kind of thing. Um, They're the the main company that produces this. In fact, their main competitor uh, went out of business, stopped making the EpiPen. Uh, Since 2009, these devices have increased in price 15 times. In 2009, they were $124 a unit. Uh, Now they're currently uh, $609 a unit. The shelf life on epinephrine is relatively short, meaning that people and insurance companies have to buy these devices on a regular interval. The CEO of Mylan Pharmaceuticals makes $15 million a year, while the poor who are reliant on this device and this medicine are spread even more financially thin. No one is saying that Mylan Pharmaceuticals or anyone else in business must give away their products. No one is saying that. But to be so greedy is not for the common good. Is there a way to make a profit while also being a good neighbor? The Bible suggests that the answer is yes. In fact, that's a picture of shalom, where workers produce and are paid, where businesses produce and are paid a fair price, a fair wage, because the scriptures talk a lot about you and I working and enjoying the fruit of our labor, like God is a good God. We talked about the huckleberries on the side of the trail, like he gives us all this great stuff. He wants us to have good work. He created us, and Genesis 2 talks about from the very beginning, by the way, before the fall, he created us to work, 
to have vocation. This is not a result of the fall. Maybe your work is, get a new, <laughs> different kind of work. But, but work, if you, when you find something you can sink your teeth into, that you're called to, that you love, that is a gift from God. Which, by the way, this is another side topic, but unemployment's a big issue. Um, problem's not solved in our country. It's better than it's been in a while. But you know, in places like we look at France, for example, with some of the uh, violent uprising of young people, People want to blame that on religion and things, but, but people under 30, under 35 even in France are finding it hard to get good employment. That is a problem. That's a problem that a preacher can't fix. That's a problem that, um, you know, um, a school teacher is not going to fix. But some of you might be out there who are policymakers. Some of you, and I'm talking about the whole church, not just, just you, because I pretty much know what all of you do, uh, but... <laughs> But that is for someone, a Christian thinker. That is something for the church to pray about. That is something that, that we need to get behind because these are not just economic problems and social problems. These are Bible problems. These are shalom problems. These are human problems. And when people don't have good work available to them, they feel devalued, they get anxious and frustrated, and things happen. Stealing is stealing the God-given fruit of another person's labor. The fruit of your labor is a gift from God. If someone steals the fruit of your labor, whether or not you have a bunch, we love the Robin Hood story, right? Like Robin Hood steals from the rich. Guess what? It's not our job to be Robin Hood. It's not our job to judge other people. Uh, the, the example of the candy bar with the game um, that's, we all know that shoplifting is wrong, but we do it in other aspects because we think, well, big corporations, they've got a lot of money. We, they don't mind if we skimp on that. Or the government's got lots of money. They won't mind if I miss my taxes. We, we do this in, in, in big things. It's, the Bible's very clear. It's not our place to judge. God's going to do that. And God help us if we're not just people. Um, but when we steal from someone else, despite their own corruption, despite how much they have, it's stealing the fruit of God's labor, uh, the fruit of their labor. It's a God-given gift. According to Scripture, the reason that stealing is such a crime against God is because when we steal from others, we steal shalom. When we steal from other people, we steal shalom, the possibility of shalom. Have you ever been burglarized in your house or from your car? Yeah. Yeah. It's not just about your stuff, is it? You've been violated. And some of you may find it, uh, have found it difficult to sleep at night. Um, parent, we've had uh, car prowlers. I mean, Corey and I are both pretty like, did you lock the, I, I, I think I must bug my neighbors how many times I click the alarm on my car before I go to bed just because I'm just like triple checking because it feels like a violation. Um, it's more than just the stuff, isn't it? It's someone has taken a piece, of, a piece of your peace, if you want to put it that way. Stealing takes a piece of shalom away. And if we dig deep down, if we look deeply into the mirror of this commandment, I think we all realize that in some way, shape, or form, we're tempted to steal when we want products that are cheap but don't want to know where they came from uh, because you know somebody suffered to make them that cheap, 
we might be guilty of stealing the fruit of someone else's labor or stealing someone's childhood, to put it bluntly, in some uh, products. If you pirate movies or music, whether or not you think Hollywood is so rich or that artist, they, they're so rich, they don't need my money for that one CD or that one movie, um, you're stealing the God-given fruit of someone's labor. That's just, that's just the facts. On the other hand, Paul tells the Ephesians to work so that they will have money to share with those in need. So there's this tension between enjoying the fruit of your labor, you work so you can enjoy the fruit of your labor, and you work, says Paul, so that you can have money to help other people. There, there's a tension there. And very few of us are very good at living in that tension. We either err on the side of, I earned it, and so I'm going to spend it on me, or we err on that side of like always feeling guilty, like I can never do anything nice for myself or have anything nice because there's one more person to take care of. And both of those are a trap. Both of those are a trap. That's a, God wants us to enjoy the fruit of our labor and to have means to be able to help other people. So why do we do this? Why do we struggle with this so much, this, this greed and this stealing? Um, well, I mean, greed, of course, is part of it. Um, materialism, like we live in a pretty materialistic culture. Like, it's just hard to escape where we're at. Uh, that's all part of it. I, I think deep down, we steal shalom from other people because we fear we won't have enough. Like, enough of our own piece of the pie. Enough of um, security or whatever it is. Without Jesus, there's this nagging feeling that we're not quite secure enough. That if I just cut the corners or make some extra financial margin by bending the rules, I might have a little more security, a little more income to make me happy. But this nagging feeling we have of insecurity is actually a grace from God. It is a reminder that you and I are never fully complete unless we find our rest in Jesus. Torin did an amazing job reading Luke 19 uh, just a few moments ago. That's the story of Zacchaeus, right? The tax collector. In fact, he was a chief tax collector and he was wealthy. He made his wealth, though, in a despicable way. He was an Israelite living in Jericho and the Israelites were occupied by the Roman Empire. And the Roman Empire demanded taxes for all kinds of different things, and they hired locals, Israelites, to be tax collectors. These tax collectors then not only took money from their fellow brothers and sisters to pay the Roman tax, they also charged a little bit extra so that they could get rich themselves. So Zacchaeus was notorious for overcharging his fellow brothers and sisters in order to secure his own pocketbook, in order to make his life a little more comfortable, in order to secure his future. Some might even say he was a good businessman. And if that were a biblical value, that would be great. But one day, Jesus comes to town, and Zacchaeus, like most other people there in Jericho, had heard the buzz about Jesus, and he wanted to see him. His shady business dealings had given him every earthly comfort, but his heart told him something more. I'm just drawn to hear about what this Jesus has to say. Not able to see Jesus because of his short stature, he climbed a tree. 
just as uh, Jesus was passing by, he looks up at Zacchaeus, meets him in the eye, so I imagine it's more dramatic that way, and says, Zacchaeus, come, hurry, down the tree, for today I must stay at your house. Zacchaeus, of course, comes down hurriedly and receives Jesus gladly. And the crowds are ticked. They are enraged. How could Jesus go to that guy's house of all the people? Didn't Jesus know who Zacchaeus was? Didn't he have a clue what Zacchaeus was doing? Didn't Jesus know that this man was a thief, a breaker of the eighth commandment, an enemy of Israel? Zacchaeus, I'm sure hearing their voices and their grumbling, likely feeling the guilt is overcome by something that his money couldn't buy. The presence and acceptance of Jesus. And in that moment, Zacchaeus does what Jesus calls you and I to do. He repents. He confesses his sin, and he resolves, makes a decision to live differently. As a thief, Zacchaeus not only confessed his sin, that's one step, but he made restitution. He gave half of his money to the poor and paid back four times what he stole from people. His repentance, his change of heart, was matched by a change in behavior. That's one of the things I think sometimes the church has missed. We, us, all of us, we... We have good news to share. Forgiveness is great news. But it only plays out so long. Like, forgiveness feels good, but then there there comes a moment where you just are sick of doing the same thing again. Like, it's great, God, that you forgive me a million times. I'm just sick of being a sinner. I am sick of following down in this rut uh, uh, of mistakes in the same path. There comes a, a, a time where what Jesus is calling us to is repentance. It's confession of what I've done wrong, but also like, Lord, with your help, would you help me to live differently? Would you help me to do it differently? And Zacchaeus responds in the moment with repentance, this confession of his sin and a change of behavior. And he gives back. That's true repentance. And, and what does Jesus do in that moment? He responds with words that give life. He says, today salvation has come to this house because he too, this thief that's despised by this culture and this community, this man who's a breaker of the eighth commandment. By the way, think of people who broke commandments. Think of David and Paul who are complicit in murder. And there's some of the biggest names in scripture, the most powerful followers of God. Like, you're not too far gone. This breaker of the eighth commandment Jesus declares, is now a child of Abraham, a son. Salvation has come to his house. Not because of all of his glorious track record, or because of his money, or because of his power, but because of his repentance and his humility. Zacchaeus had been a thief because it was his way of trying to find salvation in the world at the expense of his neighbors. Wealth was his security blanket, and comfort is what he hoped would make him happy. But he also knew his emptiness. And just like we know our emptiness, don't we sometimes come face to face with our emptiness? 
And he was stealing shalom from other people rather than working towards shalom, which is where real happiness is found, real fulfillment. When you start to flip that around and stop living for yourself and start saying, how can I be a better employer or a better employee or a better spouse or a better friend? How can I increase the value of the lives of the people around me? That's when you really start living. And that is impossible to do, I believe, without Jesus. Because I am too much of a selfish person to do that without Jesus. See, true shalom is costly. Just ask Jesus, who died on the cross, right, to forgive Zacchaeus and to forgive you and to forgive me. True salvation comes when we realize we're accepted into God's family, into his, commun- his new community, and true salvation comes when we respond to the good news, like Zacchaeus, with joy and a reorienting of our priorities. From greed to generosity. Reorient- reorienting our lives means making decisions motivated out of love of God and neighbor instead of selfish ambition. Let's ask God to help us work for shalom rather than stealing other people's shalom. Huh? Lord, I thank you that you have spared uh, no expense to rescue us. Lord, as we look in the mirror of this eighth commandment and face our insecurities, our fears about finances, our temptation to cut corners, and um, Lord, to do things that may not be illegal, uh, but surely aren't the best for our neighbor, God. As we're tempted to do that out of fear of of being taken care of, out of of whatever it is that, that is causing us to do it, Lord, would you overwhelm us with with your your hope your your provision would you remind us that you provide for your people and you will provide for us and would you set us free from the things we think we need and replace it with the things that really give us life i pray lord for my brothers and sisters and myself, that you would grip our imaginations and our hearts with a vision for shalom, for what that word, what that concept really means. What does it mean, Lord, to be at peace in our homes, in our communities, and to work for the peace of others, for the good of others, to advocate for others, to make sure we do right by others, But it feels like asking, asking the impossible. I, I, I guess it is without your help. I confess it is without your help. Lord, help us to take that next step full of joy that you call us children of God, that you have accepted us into your family, that you say today in this building in Letter Street's Covenant Church, Salvation has come to this house. Bless you, Lord. Bless you for this new life. Amen.